If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine, the nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Miss Barbecue. Tonight, Abby Dees will be live in conversation with Kate Kendall, Executive Director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights, NCLR, a national legal organization that fights for the civil and human rights of LGBT people and their families through litigation, public policy advocacy, and public education. And while she gets ready over in Studio B, Wenzel and I are going to give you the fun drive 411. It will only take a few minutes, and then we'll throw it to Abby Dees. So if you don't want to miss the tea with Kate Wen- Kate Kendall... I almost said Kate Wenzel. I know. Kate Kate Kendall. (laughs) You best stay put and listen to us first. Oh, he knows me so well in this Uh, script. Because what is one thing we can rely on in this life, Miss B? What can we rely on? The KPFK Fun Drive. And it's that magical, magical time of year again. It's that magical time of the year. (laughs) What can we rely on? You. Hopefully. I know. know. Because Fun Drive is where you get to show your appreciation for the service that we provide by bringing you... A very queer-oriented radio show on honest-to-goodness terrestrial radio. This is not being done from my mother's basement. (laughs) Oh, my mama's kitchen. Exactly. And it has one of the biggest signals in Southern California. And we bring you, as we're bringing you tonight, Kate Kendall, and a spirited and intellectual conversation with Abby Dees. We've had, what are our fun guests we've had on this oh, show? Oh, God, um, Cheyenne Jackson we've had in here. We've had um, Drew Droget. Drew, Drew Droget. And if you've been paying attention to the Susan Olsen scandal, that is Leon Acord Whiting, who is a friend of IMRU. She's been on this show, what, twice, I think? I know, she's I been know. on here. Yes, we love I her. So, we no. love her. Anyway, we bring you a lot, and we just would appreciate if you would appreciate us. Now, exactly. You can just call the Pledge Drive number, 818-985-5735. Again, that's 818-985-5735. We got people waiting with bated breath right over by the telephones right now as we speak. Now, something you may wish to spend a little money on in addition to us is our film club. Now, yes. film club is $150, but that is for a year, and you will be given access to an unbelievable number of movies. I think they promise you, what, 30 or 40, but they provide so much more than that. They've had 30 films just during the months of November and December. I keep hearing that it pays for itself, you know, just, just 
just on the film club alone oh, yeah, with, yeah. With, with the premium cost of, of films these days and, and releases and so forth that the film club is really, really um, a bargain, it actually, is. For, it, for all that you get. It includes art films, film festivals, classic films, blockbusters, family films, horror, fantasy, documentaries, opera, ballet, theater, museums. It's all part of Film Club, and that's only $150 for a year, and that money goes straight to KPFK. Which means it goes straight to us. Well, not us personally. <laughs> no, KPFK, it, it's about keeping the lights on, basically. This, exactly. This place doesn't run itself. Equipment breaks and needs to be fixed. Lights need to stay on. Somebody's got to pay for that huge antenna. I mean, that's what it's all about. So if you can just call and pledge, pledge a little pledge a lot. We'd like it if you pledge a lot. And the number to call is 818-985-5735 because you don't find programming like this anywhere else in the city. No, I've looked around actually to find out what our competition was. Mm-hmm. And um, not to toot our own horn, but um, there's not a lot. There's hardly anything like us out there. Yeah. There really, really, really isn't there where you can listen to listen to a program to get Get news, get entertainment, be informed, um, intellectual conversations, you know, all those things that IMRU brings to you, you can't really get anywhere else on the radio. So just call the pledge drive number, 818-985-5735. Oh, now. Thomas <laughs> <laughs> <Thank> B. <laughs> so suave. This is like silk. <laughs> <laughs> now, as promised, let's give it over to Abby D's in Studio B. Thank you, Miss B. Thank you, Wenzel. And welcome to another pledge evening. We are going to make this show absolutely worth sticking around for. And, well, here's one good reason. For almost 40 years, the National Center for Lesbian Rights has been at the front lines of almost every significant battle to secure the rights of LGBTQ people. From local legal advocacy in rural towns to state-by-state challenges, the INS, All the way to this U.S. Supreme Court, NCLR has been there for us. And for the last 20 years, that work has been led by executive director and all-around queer badass, Kate Kendall. Kate is here tonight live in studio to give us the lowdown on all of that as well as what comes next. Welcome, Kate. I am so happy to be here. I can't tell you, Abby. You know, Thank I you. did a happy dance when I found that you were actually going to be with us live. Um, I and love it. the timing really couldn't be better because there's so much to talk about and there's so much going on. Um, but for folks that aren't that familiar with NCLR, I know you've got like a highlight reel. Oh, sure. We were founded in 1977. I was a junior in high school. And in 1977, I mean, while it's in the lifetime of probably many people listening, um, it feels like it's ancient history. The place of queer people in the uh, nation in 1977 uh, was just, in, in some ways, very desolate. It was uh, there was a burgeoning movement. Obviously, feminism was beginning. Um, it was before HIV and AIDS, and before the activism around that. We weren't even talking about marriage. Oh gosh, marriage would have been seen fanciful and farcical, actually. And just the visibility of LGBT people was only in the negative. There yeah. was only a negative image. There was there was nothing positive, nothing celebratory, very few elected officials. Um, it was it was a little bit of a wasteland, and yet in that, <laughs> what we look back now and say, wow, how hard was that? There were many people doing tremendously good work, and NCLR was founded recognizing the reason we're the National Center for Lesbian Rights is we recognize that the issues that were being addressed weren't issues that were, were addressing the needs of lesbians, which was primarily 
employment and losing custody of their kids. There was sodomy reform going on, there was gays in the military going on, but that affected lesbians less than it did gay men. And so Donna Hitchens, who founded us, said, look, we, we need to found an organization that focuses on the issues that impact lesbians primarily. And then lo and behold, she found that right away, gay men lose custody of their kids. Yeah. Gay men lose their jobs. And so we are an LGBT organization, but we retain our name in order to continue to elevate lesbian leadership, which still lacks. But boy, in that 40 years, and even in my 20 years at the helm, um, it's just been breathtaking what we've achieved. Were you thinking 20 years ago when you started, and it doesn't seem like that long ago to me, but so much has happened. I mean, really, the landscape of LGBT law has happened in that time. Where did you think we'd be right now? I would have thought, if someone would have asked me 20 years ago, uh, I would have imagined that we would still be fighting for employment protections, still true. Uh, we would have still been fighting for um, a place at the table in terms of political discourse. We've achieved much in terms of that. I just came from the Victory Institute Conference in D.C. LGBT elected officials exist at every single level of municipal, state, and national government. Not at the numbers we should have, but still uh, almost in places that are you would not expect. And... Um, and I would have never imagined that we would have achieved marriage or that we would be talking about the inclusion and the place of transgender people and protection for transgender individuals. I feel like the movement has grown up in such a way and developed with a rapidity that I just, I just wouldn't have imagined. It's, uh, two things happened to me in this 20 years. I look at my son, who I just saw when I was in D.C., who's 20 years old, born the same week I became executive director, and I think, holy heck, how is it that I have a, a 20, how is he growing up so fast? And at the same time, I think, how is it we've achieved so much so quickly? Still a lot to do, of course, but um, but boy, it's been breakneck. What are some of the things that you've been involved in or NCLR has been involved with that are your sort of personal victories that you think about? Well, we pretty much ended the practice of lesbians and gay men losing custody of their children solely based on their sexual orientation. When I first started 20 years ago, we were getting calls every day from uh, queer parents who lost custody of their kids. We've won cases on behalf of gay men, lesbians, bisexual, and transgender parents to retain custody of their kids and have changed the law on that issue in virtually every single state. We were lead counsel winning marriage in California. California was a harbinger. Prop 8 took that away. It was a devastating moment, but it galvanized our movement across the country in a way that I think was completely responsible for how we've won marriage nationwide seven years later. We also, I'm also very proud of the work that we do on immigration, the work that we do for poor LGBT folks. Many of them are LGBT folks who live in rural areas, LGBT folks of color. We really understand, and I think everyone knows this, that we literally are everywhere. So issues of poverty, issues of immigration, issues of, um, of race, issues of policing and criminal justice, these are LGBT issues, and we really work at that intersection to honor the fullness of who queer people are with all their identities. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's always really appe appealed to me about NCLR is that you have never, well, you're very savvy, you know, and you're dealing very much in the big leagues. Oh, God, hey, I use that term right now. It's, it's gotten under <laughs> yeah, my skin, know, but, but we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about Trump in a moment. Um, but you've never forgotten your grassroots, and you've never forgotten that commitment to the most vulnerable people. Do you see that? I mean, has that always been the case for NCLR, that there's been that focus on people that are the ones that are most likely to get forgotten in a movement? 
I believe it has been, and I think it has a lot to do with our feminist roots. I mean, I'm 56, so I cut my teeth on feminism. I was a feminist before I really fully identified as a lesbian. And feminism at its best is really about empowering people to live their authentic lives and be their full selves in all their identities. And, and I really think that given that NCLR was born of those feminist values, it's kind of in our DNA. Um, I mean, obviously, I want to magnify that. The, my board has magnified that over the, my time and tenure. The staff certainly embodies that. And it's a constant evolving process. I mean, as an anti-racist organization committed to doing work across issues, you know, you ne you know sometimes you, you, it's, it's always a work in progress. You have to constantly work on it, especially in a culture like this that is so avowedly racist and elevates white supremacy. But I love that it is just in our molecular structure that this is the sort of organization we are. Um, I want to pause for a moment to remind folks that we are actually live streaming this on Facebook Live. So if you want to see Kate in person, in all of her fabulousness with her cup of tea, um, go on the IMRU page and check us out, uh, Facebook Live. And we're sort of working out the kinks on that. So I apologize if... We can't quite figure out what we're doing with like Facebook Live, but we're, we're getting it figured out. Um, you mentioned Prop 8, and I think Prop 8 for a lot of us was kind of that moment, at least in California, where this suddenly, our issues really became mainstream and people were talking about it in our families and at work. And, you know, I was one of those people that was doing a lot of sort of criticism of how this was happening and how the ad campaigns were going. And we were all sort of giving our opinions. There was a lot of stress around Prop 8. Um, looking back at that, is there anything that you sort of feel like you were vindicated about or things you would have done differently? What did that process teach Oh, gosh, you? the list of things I wish would have happened differently is a really long one. But, you know, I, I didn't run the campaign. We had professionals running the campaign, which is what you're supposed to do. I mean, that was probably the right thing to do. I'm not sure there's anything we could have done to win in 2008. I mean, keep in mind, Maine uh, faced the same measure a yeah. year later and ran a campaign that everybody said was, like, perfectly run, did exactly what they should have done. They lost by the exact same percentage we lost in California. I don't think we could have won it. But I do think... If the campaign had featured LGBT people more at the center, had centered same-sex couples, had tried to tell the story of our relationships and our love, um, and, and we got the messaging right about two or three years later, and I do think that changed things, I think people would have felt better about the campaign, but I, don't, I still don't think we would have won. But I'll tell you, that was one of the most bruising, devastating experiences of my life, and the only thing I can compare it to. Um, I used to compare it to when I had when my when my parents and my brother passed, which obviously it didn't. Um, you know, those experiences were much more uh, impactful to me. But I, that same kind of familiar grief. The only other thing that I can relate it to is uh, is how I felt on November eighth. It was yeah. that kind of a this, like, oh, November eighth kind yeah. of experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, was there anything that you would have done differently, knowing what you know now? I. I think we would have sounded the alarm earlier the alarm that we were what? in trouble. You know, we had that early public poll that showed Prop 8 losing by, I think it was 17 points. I mean, it was a huge margin. We never, we from everything I saw inside the campaign, we were never actually winning. And I think, and I think we were worried about saying, hey, look, it looks like we're losing because we were afraid it would suppress giving. I think what suppressed giving is people thought we were going to win. 
So I do wish I would agree with you if I was in charge, I would have gone out with, you know, red alert, um, you know, in July or August saying we're down. We don't care what the public polling says. We're down. This is what all our polling says. And this is and we would have had like, you know, we do, do a real exposure about what we really saw. And that might have made a difference. At least people wouldn't have been so shocked when we lost. People thought we were going to win and they were shocked when we lost. They blamed the campaign. I, and I think that a lot of criticism is fair. Um, but the fact is, I'm not sure we could have won at all. But I think our community could have been better educated and better prepared for the loss. But in some ways, the shock of the loss is what galvanized people to act. Absolutely. And I think that we're looking at that right now with no the Trump election is that a lot of these same dynamics were at play. We just assumed things would go the way we thought. We hoped that they would go. Yep. Um, not all of us, um, but many of us. Um, what has changed in NCLR's vision since at least your time there, like in sort of where the priorities are or how you go about doing things? I definitely think we're much more focused, particularly now having one marriage, although we always saw marriage as an economic justice um, issue uh, that would benefit poor uh, LGBT people and same-sex couples um, much more than it would uh, well-off folks who could protect themselves. But I think where we've really shifted our work is the most vulnerable, the people most targeted, and particularly in this new administration, poor rural LGBT folks, trans youth, uh, immigrants, uh, DACA kids, uh, deferred action for childhood arrivals, folks that kids that got uh, deferred on their um, on deportations. These are all folks who are really under target. Many of them are queer, not all of them, but this is still an issue that is a core value to protect folks who are targeted by uh, an oppressive regime. And that's that looks like that's what's going to happen. And I think we have to be, NCLR has to be there to stand guard against uh, any uh, incursion into these communities. And I think the entire LGBT community has to stand up and say, you're not getting them through them. You're not getting to them unless you come through us. How do you think that we reach members of our community that may have gotten marriage and they're like, okay, that's really all I was interested in. I think a lot of us assume if we're involved in these issues that this whole community is on top of this stuff and pushing for it. And that's not necessarily a very fair, you know, assessment. People are living their lives. How do we reach people that think, okay, you know, I got my marriage. I've got my adoption. I'm good. I think, you know, I was much more worried about that um, if Hillary had won, because I do think it would have reinforced maybe a passivity for folks. I will tell you, Abby, as I travel around the country and as I speak, um, I see LGBT people, and I'm particularly talking about the white LGBT folks, relatively well-off, relatively well-educated. I feel like they feel a deep need to pay it forward we won this huge thing on a trajectory much quicker than anyone thought. And now we have parts of our community and other communities we care about that are under great existential threat. And everything I'm seeing is a huge capacity for resistance, a huge thirst to get engaged, to try to protect the most targeted communities. I, it's, I have to say, I mean, look, the, the election was devastating and there's going to be a lot of damage done. I don't want to minimize that. But I have been very inspired by the, I will just say, universality of the view 
that we got to be here for every targeted community, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity. We have to stand shoulder to shoulder. This is something I really noticed in just the interviews of people that have come into the station. I realize we're, we're, we seem to be a lot more um, fluid in the way that we think about the any sort of struggle and uh, justice, inequality, that we're not just thinking about our community. We're understanding that what affects you affects me and what affects me affects you. That's giving me some hope. It It, should, yeah. I mean, you know, is that, are you noticing that in your donors? Are you noticing sort of an an increased, the people that you are working with? I am. And you know know where I think it comes from? I think people recognize, if you just take marriage as an example, and marriage was not the most important issue we've ever fought for, and it won't be the most important issue going forward, but it did resonate with the lives of a lot of people. And I think what people recognize is we won marriage because lots of people who weren't queer stood up and supported the right of same-sex couples to marry. So we were the beneficiaries of people who refused to be bystanders, even though they didn't have any direct skin in the game. And I think that object lesson has really created, you know, a a core value in queer people to say, well, we're going to do the same thing for other communities who may be targeted, who may need our protection, who may need us to be allies for them. We're not going to be bystanders. And, you know, it just makes me proud. It makes me proud of our community because I think that's, I think that's who we are. Um, I want to get to some of the stuff that you're doing right now. What are, but what are you most concerned about, about the incoming administration and what you have heard? You know, one of my very favorite uh, Martin Luther King Jr. quotes, and I've used it many, many times, but it seems particularly um, powerful now. The first line of it is, power without love is reckless and abusive. Power without love is reckless and abusive. We know that's true. And that is what we see in this administration. We see a thirst for power unleavened by compassion or empathy or love. And, and I think the fear is that the most vulnerable are going to be in the line of sights because they will not have political strength to fight back for themselves. And I think this is going to be a moment where our community does some of its very best work. Good. I really hope that's true. I hope so, too. I believe it, though. All right. We're going to be back in just a few minutes with you, Kate. We've got so much more to talk about. But right now, let's throw this one back over to Wenzel and Miss Barbecue to talk a little bit about what you can do for IMRU and maybe what we can do for you. Thank you, Abby. And thank you, Kate Kendall, for both uh, clarifying and reminding us of our history. So you're back with Wenzel Jones. And Miss Barbecue. And we are pitching. Yes, right. Now, one thing this show provides you that you don't get in a lot of other places is history, because today we have Kate Kendall. We've spoken to Sheila Kuehl, who reminded us how lesbians stepped up to the plate to help gay men in the mid-80s, because they didn't have a background of protest, and Sheila Kuehl and her people did. Um, Abby has had Roberta Kaplan in here, the uh, lawyer who argued the United States versus Windsor before the Supreme Court, which brought down DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, which led to Oberfell versus Hodges, which brought us marriage equality. We speak to these people. And Ivy Bettini. She's spoken with Ivy Bettini, who is an icon and a legend here in town. She's, we've run interviews with Harvey Mill. Absolutely. All of this you get here on 
I am RU. So That's if, right. If you'd like to share, share a little coin with us at 818-985-5735. And if you want to step up for $50, you can get From the Vault. Our Gay and Lesbian Stories, that is an MP3 that is 10 hours long. That will take you to Vegas and back. You will be so <laughs> full, so rich in gay history. That would be $50. Just say that's what you would like when you call 818-985-5735. And also, and also as a thank you, if you give up to $75, you get a two-book minimum of, of two LGBT books valued at $45. The first one we have is Then Comes Marriage um, by Roberta Kaplan, who we, we've actually spoken to here in the studio and the second book is It's Not Over by Michelangelo Signorelli who we've also had on the show who he actually um, talked about on our last show he talked about um, victory blindness where we've had so many things go our way in the past five ten years gay marriage and so forth and trans rights and so forth that this election has really really thrown us for a loop that the fight is not over the fight is never over and the fight is never over to keep us on the air. I'm bringing it in there. You like that? That's, like good. That? That's good. Know. The fight is never over for, for public radio to have its own voice and to speak its own mind. So it's time for you to reach into your pockets and call into call into our station at 818-985-5735. Tell them you're giving to IMRU. Because we can't get comfortable but not being comfortable costs. That's right. And this is where you start to pay. That's so right. yes. 818-985-5735. And what's at the $100 level, Lorenzo? At the $100 level, you get the Wolf Pack, which is five DVDs, and the titles are All About E, Mm -hmm. How to Win at Checkers Every Time, Portrait of a Serial Monogamist, Girl King, and In the Grayscale. And strangely, this is the first time we've made a DVD offer that doesn't have barbecue in the film. I was just thinking. I know. <laughs> I was just I, thinking. I'm like, where's my movie? My movie's not on there. That, but, that, but that's okay, though. We'll I, save her for another time. They're all fine films, but I, I feel like I'm cheating on you by offering films <laughs> that don't feature you. At least you cheating one on me? Oh, you no. cheating on me? I'm going to get all bad girls club on you. And then... Not to remind you too often, but it is Film Club for $150, which is madly popular. It makes a perfect gift for just about anybody who lives in the L.A. area. The so creme de la creme of films. Exactly. So call 818-985-5735. Yes, absolutely. The fight is never over for, for us in the LGBT community or over at KPFK as well on on getting our getting our voices out there getting you riled up to be to be able to step up to the plate if you can't step up to the plate we'll step up to the plate for you okay and if somebody does step up to the plate for you, we'll have them in to talk about it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I meet the most fascinating people doing this show, people that normally I would never get to have any contact with will come and talk to us here in the studio. Oh, the experience of just just, just hearing hearing people share their stories live and being able to being able to um you know, identify and be educated as well. I've gotten so educated working on IMRU about issues that I didn't think affected me or issues that I didn't think were really, I really cared about. And then all of a sudden I would hear about them, hearing somebody's personal story always brings you into the forefront with them. So keep us here on the air and in your ears at 818-985-5735. And, you know, speaking of being educated, I have 
broaden my worldview so much when it comes to our trans members. Absolutely. Because honestly, I knew what transsexuals were, but I didn't have any in my life. Mm -hmm. And while I can't say they're actually in my life, they come into my studio and they explain things to me, and it's been an enormous help. Absolutely. Well, I just came out as a as a gender nonconformist, which is underneath the trans umbrella. Where was and, my invitation? And <laughs> it's still being glittered. Thank you. It's still being glittered. But as a gender nonconformist, I had to realize, you know, I'm not trans. I'm not. I don't identify as a gay male. And where do where's my voice in all of that? You know, what I mean, and 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 just just hearing other people's stories helped me be comfortable being who I am. And it's okay. And it's okay. So call 818-985-5735 and we'll be back with Abby Dees and a live conversation with Kate Kendall, Executive Director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights in just a minute. Mrs. Claus and Miss Bates, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. As a bishop, St. Nicholas was unmarried, but became transformed into a secular Santa Claus in the 1820s, with Mrs. Claus popping into the picture around 1850. She was popularized by Catherine Lee Bates in her 1889 poem, Goody Santa Claus on a Sleigh Ride, printed as a book with illustrations of Mrs. Claus. Before that, Santa worked alone or was helped by elves. But Mrs. Claus was depicted as no stay-at-home wife. She took a feminist stand, demanding credit for her hard work to making Christmas possible, such as cooking to make Santa plump. Also unconventional was her creator, Catherine Lee Bates, who shared a life and home with Catherine Coleman, her devoted companion. Bates is best known, however, as writer of the lyrics for America the Beautiful. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Daniela Wyatt. Hello, I'm Michael Cunningham, author of The Hours, and you're listening to IMRU on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 97.8 in Santa Barbara. And hey, we're in the middle of Fun Drive. Call right now. If you are LGBTQ and exercising your right to live freely at work, at home, in your community, in the military, with regard to an adoption, or your immigration status, your HIV status, your senior, or your queer or gender fluid kid, or in just about any other way, If you are exercising your rights, then you are likely to owe a big thanks to the National Center for Lesbian Rights and Executive Director Kate Kendall, who is sitting right here in front of me. Welcome back, Kate. Yeah, happy to be back again. So moving forward, we've talked about a lot that NCLR has done, and these have been some of the big threshold cases, but there's a lot to be done. What are you working on right now? You know, in the in the wake of the election, I feel like our work is um, kind of on on in two different buckets. One is the the bucket that we know. This is litigation, policy reform, um, working with state legislatures. Uh, it's the stuff that we've been doing for forty years, and some of that work um, is happening right now. We 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 filed the first of its ever lawsuit challenging. Utah's law that forbids any positive, believe it or not, 12 of these laws still exist, any positive discussion of, quote, homosexuality in public schools. Such a law exists in Utah and 11 other states. This is the first federal lawsuit challenging what are called no promo homo laws. Because that's a convenient way. (laughs) Because it's a convenient way to characterize it and it's catchy. And 
we felt like the time was right to take these laws down, and we think we can do it um, in the Utah Challenge. I'm from Utah originally, and I just can't imagine going through school in a public school setting and not being able as a particularly a young queer kid or a queer supportive kid and be able to speak openly about the contributions of LGBT people. So if a kid wants to do a report on Harvey Milk, he can't do it under this law. If a girl is taunted because she isn't gender conforming enough or feminine enough and she wants the school to do something about it and she wants a statement to be made, that can't happen under this law. No teacher can intervene and speak positively about protecting LGBT kids under this law. These are the everyday effects and of a law like this. And these aren't just theoretical. This, these aren't just oh, no, abstract possibilities. I mean, these are our clients. Yeah, I read the complaint, oh, and I was, and, and it is, it makes you cry. A couple of things that jumped out at me was a, a middle school girl who was disciplined or warned of a disciplinary action because she was holding another girl's hand. Yeah, you know, I mean, and a kid that couldn't do a oral report because about his family because it included the marriage of his uncle. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's very easy to forget that you are actually talking about real people. Your clients are real people. These are not just ideas in the ether. Yeah. And young people who are so, you know, can, I mean, look, young people are incredibly resilient. I mean, I see this every single day, but also, you know, can be incredibly wounded. And these are authority figures wounding them. These are teachers. These are school administrators who are pledged to actually do good for people in their charge. So there's nothing I want more than to take down this law. I've just, I've had it with the law, law, this law or laws like it that exist. And, um, and so I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to take down that law. How are um, you doing it? What's the, how are you challenging this? Well, we're arguing that it's a violation of equal protection under the 14th Amendment. These kids, LGBT kids, are not protected uh, in the same way other kids are. And then there are violations of ed code provisions, violations of Title IX, which, should, which has been interpreted to protect um, sexual orientation and gender identity for uh, kids in public schools. So we have a range of um, claims that we're making, and I think we have a very good chance of taking down this law. And if we take down one, we'll take down all of them. I'm, I'm interested in the equal protection challenge because I think what's, what's unusual about the marriage cases is that they were decided under, in part, equal protection. And yet we really don't, as a community have full rights as we think of them the way that we would around gender discrimination or race discrimination under equal protection. Um, are you planning to change that? Are you able to work within the existing equal protection we, framework? Well, especially now. I mean, we have to work within the existing frameworks. I mean, if we'd had a different administration, we were very much hoping that we would see um, explicit protections out of Congress, the Equality Act that would explicitly protect uh, based on sexual orientation uh, or gender identity. And it's important. I think it's enormously important for the federal law to set the tone or for state laws to set the tone about how we behave with each other in a civil society. But, you know, it's no panacea. I mean, let's be clear. We've passed Title VII. We've passed the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And the carnage against black and brown bodies uh, has only in some ways over the past uh, couple of years been more visible. So, the law itself doesn't solve people's private bigotry and prejudice. That is something that requires more serious cultural change. But we should be protected by the same federal laws that protect other individuals based on who they are. And that moment 
is not going to happen anytime soon. So what we'll do is we'll work in the states and we'll use existing case law. We'll use the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's interpretation of Title VII and Title IX as protecting um, uh, sexual orientation and uh, gender identity against sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. Um, but we do fear that a Trump administration could undermine some of the Title IX guidance that protects kids. Uh, we're concerned that he could roll back some of the a tremendous number of agency gains that we've gotten. So we're in for a dark moment. There's just no two ways about it. But um, but in some ways, I feel like, you know, our communities seen moments like this before and we rise up. One of the things I also noticed in the complaint in this Utah case was um, free speech. Could you tell us how free speech applies in this case? A student wants to give a report on Harvey Milk. Right. And she's told she can't. There you and go. that's, you know, as basic a violation of free speech as you can get. And it's, the, and it's an arm of the government that is suppressing her ability to express herself. Or she wants to talk about what, what I did this summer. I went to my aunt's wedding. <laughs> she can't give a report like that. Um, a young boy wants to talk about his experience coming to terms with his own sexual orientation. Not able to do that. And so it's government suppressing an individual's ability to express themselves in a way that absolutely should be protected and we believe is protected by the First Amendment. Um, who are your plaintiffs in this case? We've got four uh, young people. Uh, we've, we protect their identity in the complaint. Um, but it's two, uh, two young women and two young men. And, boy, I mean, the bravery of these kids in letting their story be told. One of them is actually a middle schooler, and the others are high school students, I believe. And their parents, obviously, uh, agreeing that their story could be told. Um, they're the real heroes. But this is true of every one of our cases. You know, lawyers are lawyers, and yes, our lawyers, I think, are particularly talented and do particularly great work, <laughs> but you know, there'd be no case to file if we didn't have plaintiffs who were willing to really expose themselves. Lawsuits are hard. There yeah. is no way around it. It doesn't matter how winning yeah. your side is. So what's the other side saying? How are they defending themselves? That this is an appropriate uh, regulation for a public school to enact. They are arguing some homophobic things that um, you know homosexuality is um, is immoral, uh, and that you know the dominant culture in Utah uh, finds it to be immoral. And so you know they're they're arguing stuff that you think, holy heck, when will we not have to face arguments like this? But um, but here we are. But because once again, I feel like the arguments are completely unpersuasive when matched against the damage done to these young people and to other young people who either want to support queer kids or who are LGBT identified themselves. I, I think you, I, my prognostication is that, um, is that this will be a successful challenge. But you know, it won't be the first time we will have won in a place where people think, oh, that, how can that be? We just, just a few months ago, we won a case in Ohio on behalf of a young transgender girl. And you know, Ohio, conservative state. Um, so, you know, sometimes we punch above our weight and we win against the odds. Yeah, absolutely. You have been really committed to trans issues. And I think NCLR has really taken the lead around that. You know, so many people, all of us, I think we use the words, the term LGBTQ. We believe this, but we don't actually make the changes 
to really start looking at the issues. Um, in practice, do you ever come up against this sort of like, are we are we just saying LGBTQ? I mean, how have you had growing pains to respond to this need? That's a really interesting question. We've had, I mean, uh, we were the first organization that had a full-time trans staff person. Our staff attorney, he was, he was a staff attorney at the time, uh, Shannon Minter ran our youth project, and he announced to me that he was going to transition uh, female to male, gosh, maybe in the second year of my tenure as executive director. And we became the first national LGBT organization to have a full-time transgender staff person. And at the time, I thought, oh, how ironic that it's the National Center for Lesbian Rights that has the first trans staff person. And perfect. And, you know, we did have a little bit of pushback, not really from donors. I talked to donors about it, and to a person, everybody was like, well, look, as long as he cares about the organization and continues to do the amazing work he's done, I mean, part of it is that Shannon is just brilliant. But, you know, he's now been at the organization, I mean, longer than I have, so his tenure is about 23 years now. And um, Shannon is so – Shannon has really been – you know, I knew trans people before Shannon's transition, but, you know, Shannon has really allowed people and allowed the organization to be on this journey with him. And and I, I know a lot about transgender issues. I know a lot about the medical uh, situation around trans people uh, and transitioning. But more important than that, my, my kind of epiphany moment as I was sort of worrying to myself in the middle of the night one night about, gosh, how are donors going to respond to this transition? And is it going to be okay? And, you know, gosh, why me? You know, I mean, it was in my total own selfish place. And then I had this thunderbolt thought, gosh, what's Shannon going to say to his parents Hmm. or his grandmother, who he's really close to, he was really close to, and that immediately pulled me out of myself. And I thought, oh, man, you selfish. <laughs> you, I mean, I, I, I thought that's what matters, the humanity. We all want basic dignity and security and a sense of belonging. And, you know, lesbians want that. Gay men want that. Bisexuals want that. Transgender people want that. And, you know, so does everyone. And part of our core mission is to make sure everyone gets that and uh, – and trans people are too often denied it. Yeah. You have really, t- and I want to be clear that I, you have really taken big steps around this when a lot of people were sort of tiptoeing. And um, and I think that has paid off in your successes. One of the other programs that you have right now is the Born Perfect mm. campaign. Yep. Tell me about that. Born Perfect is our hashtag for our um, our project to end conversion therapy, which has been going on uh for decades. And uh, many people thought that it had been snuffed out, but it's not true at all. When we launched the campaign about three years ago, we did so believing we'd finally hit a moment where there was enough social acceptance of uh, queer identity and the psychological community had was also unanimous in condemning conversion therapy as ineffective and, in fact, dangerous and counterproductive. So we launched this project to end conversion therapy through either legislation, which bans conversion therapy on minors, and we've had that passed in six states, through public education around the dangers of it. And really, the public education piece has been one of the most effective because now parents, when they enter a Google search for conversion therapy, instead of getting three pages of therapists who perform it, 
they get three pages of searches about how dangerous it is. So we've had huge success. I mean, none other than President Obama himself has condemned conversion therapy. So I feel so gratified by this work. It's been a 20-year commitment of mind to end conversion therapy because my first entry into a lot of my queer work was um, a young girl who'd been placed into a psychiatric facility in Utah. And so taking down conversion therapy is... Um, is a huge commitment for me and for NCLR, and we're already well on our way to doing that. Hashtag born perfect. Hashtag born perfect. What else is on your plate? The, f the other bucket of work that we're doing, you know, we're doing work in the wheelhouse of litigation and policy reform. The other bucket is yet to be determined, <laughs> and, and I just sort of tag the bucket resistance. And what I think it means is it's doing things like I'm helping to co-convene a training for probably 2,000 lawyers in San Francisco around a whole range of issues to be civil society defenders and to show up to defend either immigrants, people in the criminal justice system, trans folks. So I feel like there's, I'm seeing this pop up everywhere where people are actually playing out of their lane a little bit in order to create and be a part of a massive resistance so that Trump does not do the worst that he could do. He will do damage. I'm I mean, is Trump our organizing, is our unfortunate organizing kind of element here to do this stuff? Well, look, this administration is an existential threat to everything I think we value. And if I didn't think that on, on November 9th, I certainly think it now with his cabinet nominees. We have to say, no, you, you, you will not. We will not allow. I mean, the, the MLK quote, the first sentence is, power without love is reckless and abusive. And then it goes on. Love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love, implementing the demands of justice. And love at its best is power, correcting everything that stands against love. Now that is, that is the long battle cry of a resistance army to say, we are gonna bring, we are gonna take our power and we're going to leaven it with love and empathy and a commitment to justice. And I don't know how it's all going to look or play out, but we cannot allow a tyrant to do damage to the most vulnerable or to those uh, an administration or anybody in his administration might target. And we have to be on the front line. You were reminding me, me of one of our old favorite battle cries, which was an army of lovers cannot fail. Yes. And that is, a, there's so much to that. There's so much to that. And, you know, a lot of people are talking about this combination of love and empathy and power and resistance. And uh, I'm loving what I'm seeing. For folks who want to donate, get involved, do something, how can they find NCLR? Well, please do all of that. Okay. Uh, please do all of that. We have had a little bit of an uptick in donations, and that's been important because I do feel like this moment calls for us to really be able to be at our boldest and our most powerful. You can get more information at nclrights, R-I-G-H-T-S, dot org. My contact information is there. You're welcome to email me directly for uh, any information you want. You can see about, read about all the work that we're doing. And, you know, if you want to get involved or want to get connected with maybe networks down here in Southern California, uh, I will make sure that happens because it's going to take all of us. Kate Kendall, thank you so much for coming into the studio. I've been wanting to talk to you for ages. Anytime. What a pleasure. National Center for Lesbian Rights, really one of our great, great organizations. And I hope you will be there and NCLR will be there for 
long time to come. As long Until as it we takes. don't need it as long anymore. As it takes. Yep. All right. Well, back to wonderful Wenzel and Miss B to talk a little bit more about KPFK and giving. Why, thank you. Thank uh, you. And thanks, Kate Kendall. You're actually out there making the world a better place. And IMRU is here to tell you about people like Kate Kendall making the world a better place. <laughs> Pic- who, else, who else is doing that? Exactly. Exactly. Picture it. September 1974, Los Angeles. That's the first first time IMRU was broadcasted here on KPFK in with 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 with, with Pacifica. And it's and it's always been volunteer based. Volunteer we volunteer our talents and our time here to this radio station to bring to keep you informed and give you quality stories um, that that inform and challenge you right here on IMRU. It is so important to understand that that our we volunteer this because we love what we do and we love that we're able to 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 expand and broaden the horizons of everyone who listens to this station so i it, the, i i put i wrote down on my piece of paper hashtag the time is now hashtag be proactive and support imru and kpfk by calling 818-985-5735 right wenzel Right. And to those of us who are old enough to remember what 1974 was like. <laughs> I wasn't going to ask you it, that. It was I was going to ask you. Ago. It was a completely <laughs> different time. And I think not not just being a gay show, but just being on KPFK was a radical thing. People used to take note of who came in, in and out of the station. I mean, it was a it was a scary time to be doing something like this, but it has survived this long. Let's not dwell on how many years that has been. But if you want to keep <laughs> us on the air, and who wouldn't? Call 818-985-5735. Make a pledge of $50, and you can get from The Vault, which is Gay and Lesbian Stories, a 10-hour MP3. With, oh, with, I, th- I, you, I thought you were going to sparkle right no, there. No, no, no. I, just, I, just, I was listening. Back. I was listening to you. I was listening to you. I'm like, go ahead, Wenzel. Tell them, what's, tell, them what the pri- tell them what the thank you gifts are. It's all about the history. Well, it's not so much about the thank you gifts. It's just about the existence of, of KPFK and Pacifica Radio in general. Because Pacifica Radio it was the model for what followed NPR, all those stations. And before PRI, too. Exactly. But exactly. the thing is, KPFK has stayed true to the model, which was listener-supported. Not-for-profit. Right. Not listener Listener supported with a lot of corporate support, which tends to mold your, your worldview, because there's no oil money here. No. There's no armaments money here. No. You know, I mean, if there were, these offices would be a lot prettier. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but they, but they aren't, and there's a reason why we keep we're keeping true to our roots, true to our roots with with queer with queer history, with queer politics, and true to our history here at KPFK that is for the people. Hashtag for the people. And supported by the people, exactly. Which is which is you guys, you guys out there listening, those those who've been listening to IMRU for years on end, with the with the event of the election and all the events going on and the and the trans rights and stuff. We are not nearly finished, and we need your support in this. Dial eight one eight nine eight five. Five seven three five. Tell them you're giving to IMRU to keep us on the air. Because as Abby and Kate were saying, this upcoming administration is an existential threat. Exactly. We, we cannot let this voice be silenced because if it is, it's not going to spring back. And we're not going to run away scared. No. If anything, it's put a fire in everyone's bellies to get out there and fight. And, and to get out there and fight, we have to be vocal, we have to be visual, and we have to be there. 
Also, you might want a good book. So for, <laughs> for a pledge good, of, Winslow. That's a good. That's good. Uh, read up. Read up. Everything's better with a good book. Exactly. But for, for a pledge of $75, you can get the Roberta Kaplan book, Then Comes Marriage, which discusses her fighting before the Supreme Court. And Michelangelo Signorelli, who has been an icon in queer culture for decades now, his book, It's Not Over, that reminds you, you can't ever get comfortable. It's not over, honey. And for $100, for $100, you get the wolf pack. Oh! We get the wolf you like that the wolf pack five DVDs valued at ninety dollars. You get all about E, how to win at checkers every time, portrait of a serial monogamous, girl king, and in the gray scale. We we regret that we have no more copies of Throw It on the Floor. What was it? Leave it on. Leave it, it on, on the, the floor. floor. Leave it on the throw floor. Throw it on floor. <laughs> Why are you gonna throw my film on the floor, Wenzel? I was thinking of the garment. I'm not sure where the image came from. But anyway, and for one hundred and fifty dollars, of course, is the cape. The, the the famous KPFK Film Club. It's a wonderful premium. You can give it to yourself or you can give the film club as a gift to someone else. Look at that. You could do all your holiday shopping right now by calling 818-985-5735. Give, give, give your donations. You get your thank you gift. You pop some wrapping paper on it. Bam, you're done. And I believe if you join the film club, as soon as you make your pledge, you are a film club member. There's no waiting. Immediately. Yeah, there's no waiting for card. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I know. So it's instant, instant gratification. And that's how, right. How often does that happen? I know. In, in the event of Snapchat and Twitter and mm. Facebook and all that kind of stuff, it's still always nice to get down back to basics and when I say get back down to basics, it's getting your information that's for the people, by the people. LGBT, I put down LGBTQIA because that's where we're going towards these days. So many letters. Yeah, you know, so many letters, which means we even have more important issues to bring up and to talk about within the next year of 2017. And you know, the only reason I even knew about this show was because I had a job at one time and my drive home was at the same time as this show because we don't have oh. we don't have an advertising budget. We don't, you know, we we only have the airwaves. Right? So it's important to tell your friends about this show. Actually, I started listening to IMRU when I would put on my makeup getting ready for a show. Mm-hmm. Getting for the club, I put on IMRU so I could be well informed and look first at the same time. Mm-hmm. How about that? And back when we had a calendar section, it usually <laughs> had you in it. Usually have I was usually performing somewhere, right? This had nothing to do with your personal ego, though, did it? No, 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 not even. But guys, 818-985-5735. You got those those digits? Put that in your phone. Dial in. Tell them you're donating to IMRU. And thank you, Gifts Galore. You got your holiday shopping going on. Bam. So, yes, 818-985-5735. Thank you so much for listening. And... Let's hear from Abby once more. Yes, Abby. Well, that is it for tonight, guys. But thank you so much. Our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer, Steve Pride, our director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, board op, Lizette Tapia, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. And, of course, Kate Kendall, executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. You can find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook, where we just did our live um, Facebook Live, at (laughs) IMRU Radio, where the link to this latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. And while you're on Facebook, let us know what you thought about our live streaming. Yes. If you like it, we're going to keep doing it. Absolutely. It's fun. So just a note about Pledge Break. Listen, we know it's a drag sometimes to tune in and drag. find it's <laughs> another Pledge Break <laughs> night at KPFK. But you and your support are truly what keeps us on the air. We I mean, appreciate you. You pay for airtime. You pay for the lights and this very microphone I'm talking in. 
we at IMRU never forget that we are here for you. Every pledge, even a dollar, is an affirmation of how important this work we do is, and we're committed to honoring that trust. You put your trust in us with your pledge of support, and we hope to show you how much that means by bringing you stories that don't get told anywhere else. So I hope that shows like tonight's with our special guest, Kate Kendall of NCLR, always bring you something to ponder throughout the week, maybe a little more reason to be optimistic about the future and reason to be proud of our LGBTQ community. And if we've done that for you, then please consider pledging whatever amount you can to KPFK. Maybe it's the first time you've done it. Maybe it's the 10th time. It all makes a difference. And we do thank you. Oh, Barbecue, is there anything that Abby can't do? <laughs> I know. She engages in intellectual conversation and then she oh, pitches like she an pitches angel. Too. I know. Oh, go on. I, I, I am weeping in gratitude that we have you. Oh, well, I'm weeping IMRU too, team. Wenzel. Yeah, we love, we love you guys. Well, we we're going you. to close with a special fun drive song from our very own... Abby, Abby D's. D's. No. She's a lesbian, so you know there's always a guitar nearby. Good night. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I need That's what I want, yeah, that's what I want. Your love gives me such a thrill, but your loving don't pay my bills. I need money, that's what I want, that's what I want. 